aboard the battleship pretension for as long as we can keep this boat afloat. <laughs> uh, who are you? Oh, I'm Scott and I. Yes, I'm David Bax. Uh, Tyler Smith is still uh, on an assignment in the hospital. I don't know if you follow Tyler on Twitter, but uh, he recently posted uh, a picture of himself from his hospital bed, which is the first sort of uh, visual proof of life he's, uh, he, he's he's sent out in all of in all of this time, which uh, I think is a good sign that he's feeling well enough to uh, to show himself. Um, yeah, I missed that. So uh, that's very exciting. You can check that out. You can go to the caring, caringbridge.org slash visit slash Tyler and Jennifer Smith. You can go, uh, to, you can find the GoFundMe um, at uh, pinned to the top of the homepage at battleshippretension.com. Um, that's where you can support uh, Tyler and his family. It feels like progress is being made very, very, very slowly, but it's enough to, to keep me um, uh, optimistic. Uh and in the uh, meantime, I said this on the Patreon, but I want to take a moment to thank editor large Scott and I for um, filling in so well for so long and, and for the uh, foreseeable future right now as, as well. Um, it's been um, it's made it a much smoother transition. And uh, I don't know how I would have been able to keep this going without someone uh, as dedicated and, you know, good at podcasting as as scott so thank you scott for for doing well thank you for saying so i've gotten better at podcasting over the years i feel like i used to be very awkward at it now it's like riding an audible bike (laughs) yeah i mean i think that's what happens with everyone you know i mean yeah there's a reason i mean tyler and i are so embarrassed of those first 40 episodes um that most of them aren't available unless you pay us for them uh and which uh, don't do that right now because I have uh, <laughs> I don't have any idea how to if you were to buy the first forty episodes uh, I don't know how you would uh, how I would get that was something Tyler did although I think if you sign up for the Patreon at the right level um, those are all there at a, at a certain level um, so that's one way to. To, to do it um and yeah sign up for the patreon um it supports tyler and also you get to hear you know fun stuff you get to hear me and uh me and scott uh uh me and scott scott and i uh uh for the oscar nominations that's something we did a couple weeks ago on on the patreon that was a fun time uh, i think you were right with me and scott because you wouldn't say you're you could come here i you would say you could come here me you're right you're right I guess what I'm saying is I should have said Scott and me. I think that's the... Well, that's probably true. That's the more, if not grammatically correct, that's the more polite way to put the other person sure. before yourself, I think. Um, anyway, uh, that's what's going on at the Patreon. Um, but we do uh, fun little small topics topics here, too, at the top of every show. Like, let's talk about the thing that's got everybody up in arms, Scott is uh the the upcoming changes to amc's pricing a- a- amc not the not american movie classics of course but the uh they remain free with your cable subscription and uh, not worth what they used to be um but well, uh, amc plus which i have okay um is uh worth it because you get um i didn't sound like i work for them but uh amc plus gets you shutter and bbc that's like all 
uh, a package. And That's so whichever a very one you strange up for, combination. I know, but if you signed up for Shutter, you would get AMC Plus and BBC. If you signed up for BBC, you would get AMC Plus and Shutter. They're all like sisters or something. So like I I have an AMC Plus subscription, but I probably use Shutter more. That's just what I happened to sign up for first. Sure. But no, the the movie theater will be once again finding ways to gorge you for more money. Um yeah. By having what looks like essentially like airline seating where different seats cost different prices and there's different levels to each. And it was the inevitable result of reserve seating. And everyone told me how great reserve seating <laughs> is because they just can't stand to get to the theater more than five minutes early. And this is where you Jags have led us into hell. No, <laughs> I... I like a theater where you show up and you see, well, what's the layout like? How close are these seats to the screen? Am I going to have to sit next to that weird guy? Okay, I think I'll move a couple of seats. Um, These are the pleasures of a true democratic institution, which reserve (laughs) seating is not. Reserve seating is for the elites, and I am am no elite. Um, Yeah, I still like reserve seating. But uh, um, especially if I know the theater, because uh, that, that takes away that question of like, where are the good seats? If I know the theater, I'm happy with reserved seating. Um, I know you haven't been to here, the, uh... it bit me in the ass oh, yeah? though last yeah. week. No, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, this is the the raggedy. Go ahead. I haven't I been to referring the, to. We have a lag. I, yeah, I, I was yeah. referring to a raggedy boat at the top of the yeah. show, and uh, our our internet issues are indeed that that boat. Um, you haven't been to the AMC Sunset Five, and so the AMC Sunset Five is an no. interesting reserved seat in conundrum. Most of their theaters are laid out exactly the same, and so if you look at an individual map, you don't know which auditorium you're in. However. Their theaters all feature these seating pods where every two seats is like together, but they're not in the same order in every theater. Some of them start with a single seat and then they get into two seat pods and some of them start with a two seat pod. So you never know when you're reserving two seats next to each other, if they're part of the same pod or not. You can't tell on the layout. Nope. It does. That's, There's that's no distinguishing features. <laughs> that's a mistake. Yep. Um, no, I got bitten. I went to Lemley glendale uh last weekend to uh natalie and i went to see one fine morning and natalie likes to sit on an aisle she likes to have uh easy egress if she needs to she doesn't like having to step over people if she needs to go to the bathroom you can't box her in uh yeah except i accidentally did because i picked what looked like a a a seat on the end at lenny glendale but it turns out the second row that's like up one you can only get to that row from one end oh yeah the other end is like fenced off (laughs) in there (laughs) yeah uh so yeah so i i i thought i was getting her in a place where she wouldn't have to step over anyone what i was actually doing is guaranteeing she would have to step over as many people as possible if she wanted to get out of that row yeah um well, I'm sh- I hope she was so riveted by the latest drama from Mia Hansen Love that uh, she simply could not leave the theater. Yeah, no, she didn't leave. Um, and it, it was a very good movie. Um, uh, not a not necessarily a fun time at the movie. Well, sure. It was a, it's a very good movie. Uh, real quick, I it, it occurred to me that I'd never even wondered what AMC stood for. Yeah. Um, uh, but you you won't guess. Uh, okay. I'll give you the history. Perfect. 19 founded in 1920 as Dubinsky brothers. Obviously. Uh, 
1931 to 32, Publix Dubinsky Brothers. Then in 1932 to 39, back to Dubinsky Brothers. Then it became from 39 to 47, Durwood Dubinsky Brothers. From 47 to 68, Durwood Theaters. Now here we go for here. Here comes a big uh, left left turn. Um, 1968 to 69, American Royal Cinemas. 1969 to 80, American Multi Cinema. 1980 is what that stands for. Huh? I, I would have thought it would be that. American Movie something. American yeah. movie company, American movie chain. I guess no chains don't self-describe themselves. <laughs> chains. Um, uh, no, multi makes sense because the multiplex was fairly new around that time. So they right. were distinguishing from the, you know, rinky dink mom and hop single screen theaters that everyone hated in the eighties and which now we all love again. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, that reminds me, I, I feel like we've talked about this before, but the, the Beverly center multiplex, which is no longer there. Uh, if you look up like press from the time, it was a huge deal because it had 13 screens and that was like right. insane at the time, which is funny having gone there so much when I first moved out here, I realized like, yeah, it has 13 screens because two of them were like closets. <laughs> yeah. They really chopped them up uh, when they were first yeah. doing multiplexes yeah. um, and still do. I mean, like the Los Feliz has maybe the tiniest little theater I've ever been in. Yeah. But I've had some fun there. It's a, it's a, a fun thing I saw uh, be, uh, behind the mask, the rise of Leslie Vernon. Sure. I just I remember saw I saw um, killing them softly there, which is like a beautifully shot movie yeah. seeing in their tiny little shoebox that like, yeah. you have to sit a certain degree back to even see the screen because it's weirdly like way high off the ground. But by then yeah, you're so far true. back that you might as well be watching your TV. I also saw, what was the movie? Completely forgotten movie from like 2007. Frank Langella and I want to say Lauren Ambrose. I got nothing. Well, that's going to bug me. Uh, but did Frank Langella get canceled? I feel like there's something I'm. Uh, I'm pretty forgetting. sure he did. I, I think he uh, I don't was a little too into a uh, 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 amorous scene. Oh, okay. Well, I can read it as romance. I can't remember. Uh, it's called Starting Out in the Evening, directed by Andrew Wagner, who uh, has only made one film since, and a, a 2017 feature called Breakable You, with Holly Hunter and Tony Shalhoub and Alfred Molina and Krista Milioti. Oh, he's doing all right. Don't you hate it when oh, you are oh, breakable? Oh, met Wally. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, this is all to say, um, given my uh stance on reserve seating no one will be surprised to find my my stance on this new amc thing which is i don't really care i don't care that much it doesn't bother me it's fine eh, uh you elites with your extra dollar to spend at the movies uh but also you could save two dollars by getting one of the shitty seats like, that's no way to live. No, that seems that seems like that seems like a plus. I'll go sit in those third class seats to go see the re-release of Titanic. That'll be yeah. fitting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't I'm sorry, I don't care. But uh we don't have any more time for this AMC. We're out of uh, time. Bullshit. Well, I mean, I've said before maybe it's easier for me to not care because 
as I've said multiple times in this podcast, I don't go to AMCs um, except for well, the yeah, screenings. Same. Um, but if this is successful there, obviously, you know, yeah, your Regencies and your Cinemarks, the ones I do go to, will start uh, will start using it. Uh, all right. Um, let me real quick tell you before we move on any further. Let me real quick tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors that look great. They sound great. Tyler and I, well, I use them each every day of my life. Tyler, hopefully we'll get back to doing so soon. Um, today I was uh, honoring the memory of Burt Bacharach, who, who, who died today, or at least the news broke today that Burt Bacharach had um at a young 94 uh, years of age uh, uh has left us and so i was listening to the painted memory which is the one of the uh elvis costello burt backrack uh collaboration sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available available at a low low price at tweakedaudio.com but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension (sighs) the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center thanks to carvana it doesn't get any better than this your favorite seat's the best spot in the house make it even better by entering your license plate or vin and getting a real offer in minutes there really is no place like home And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Scott? David? We're back. Let's get into it, shall we? Astute longtime listeners will have noticed that the title, the number of this episode, starts or ends in a zero. However. We have, so we have like movie journal episodes but then we have um uh the the the, the sort of main the main real ones type of episodes yeah the real the, the canonical uh, yeah. uh main uh, main line episodes uh those have numbers the movie journals are dates the main line ones are numbers uh when that number ends in a zero but is not evenly divisible by 50 that means we're doing a profile um and new and, listeners would have just looked at the episode title and figured that out too yes that's true uh, but that new listeners don't know we do this every 10 episodes that's um, true so our profiles pretty much all the time now are um tributes to filmmakers or film artists film related um uh, uh figures who have recently passed away uh so back in september i want to say uh jean-marie straub passed away um i he, i didn't realize he'd been working on his own for so long um because, nobody did uh, his his directing partner and life partner and wife danielle Huillet, uh still guessing on that pronunciation by the way uh had died i was hoping you would know for sure in 2006 uh we Oh, no, no, you watch a lot of French movies. I feel like you should know, uh, or yeah. at least have an idea. Yeah, um, weirdly, I've been slow to pick up French pronunciation. Uh, so 
I this this was kind of an opportunity for me to to not only pay respects to a filmmaking team um that mean a lot to a lot of people um but also for me to introduce myself to their work because I knew I knew the names Straubwile um and I knew them I had a general impression that they were kind of like uh leftists which they are but we'll get more into that uh uh later um but i didn't really know their films at all so i did a i would have said it i would say a deep dive it was not a deep dive because they um together made over 50 films if you include features and shorts um and straub continued to make like two shorts a year uh, yeah. <laughs> after after um Hule died uh so this is going to be a tribute in retrospective but also kind of an introduction to Straubwile. I know I'm certain I'm certain some of our listeners are already well versed um but for for me this was an introduction. Scott you told me that by the time that John Marie Straub died you had seen two. Yeah. Uh and uh I remember the one of them was the first film they made together which broke him off. I don't remember what the other one was that you said you'd seen. Well, it was actually, I, I forgot, it was a triple feature of sorts because the Turgamuff is a short and then the next one not reconciled is only like an hour long. And so they okay. also showed at the same night uh, Fortini County, um, which I'd forgotten about entirely and which I looked at, fortunately I wrote Ooh. a decent letterbox notes about, um, but which um, was my for this episode my introduction and my uh finale for engagement with them because i i didn't uh get that much out of the films and i uh am sorry to say that now having seen nine of their films i am still at odds a little bit with their whole deal so this will be an interesting sort of profile and that most yeah. are very enthusiastic and this one i am coming away a little skeptical well i um uh i've seen 10 of them so i got you by one and uh i was i was i really tapped into to them um uh, but i'm glad that you've seen two that i haven't at least two that i haven't we'll get to more yeah uh later but we tend to go do these chronologically um i did um uh read um an entire book on them oh damn <laughs> uh for yeah this was um so in 2017 i think there was a retrospective of their films that that toured the country maybe that was when you saw uh these three i don't know if that uh yes that checks uh, out yeah so um this book i think was um uh it's just called john marie straub and daniel Hule, edited by ted fent it's a collection of um uh uh essays and then a reproduction of a long very long interview and uh uh it was published in 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 conjunction with that uh because the final essay in it, in it is all about the restorations they did oh, um, cool. uh for that so anyway so i read all that so that's given me at least uh some of a basis here to 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 talk about so um they're uh French and German um, filmmakers. I mean, Jean-Marie Straub, uh, by his name alone, you can tell it's a French first name and a German last name. Uh, Daniel Hule, more more German. But um, uh, they never really 
made they didn't really make for films in france but they were around and met in france during like this sort of new wave and and um uh uh so straub uh knew those guys helped out on certain productions at the time um uh, a story i read from early that will give you a sense of their forcefulness and their combativeness and the things that that brought them together and that i think come out in uh some of the unapologetic nature of their films uh daniel Huillet in a film class the the um the final like the final exam was write an essay on a particular film a, a film that the film friend the french film industry of the time considered a french film classic and she wrote one sentence that was essentially how dare you make us analyze such an awful film (laughs) 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 um so uh yeah they're um they're they had a tendency to speak strongly. Well, especially, I mean, Straub was definitely the more outspoken. It's funny. I mentioned there's a lengthy interview in this book. Um, and it's funny to just skim through and see like the headings of who's talking. Right. Cause Straub will go on for like two pages. <laughs> and then should, there's, there's like for most of the interview, it feels like the interviewer does more talking than Daniel Hillet, uh does. But uh, because of that, I think um, as I understand it, Early on, and maybe even later in the career, but especially early on, there was a uh, perception that um, Jean-Marie Straub was the creative force because mm. he was the more unspoken, and also sexism. You know, I was um, going to say this so like, uh, yeah, sounds more like yeah, sexism. But yeah, if you, I mean, if you read early like reviews of their work, even though like they're credited to both critics would just say like Straub does this and Straub is like, it just, just talks about, about him. Um, uh, yeah. And there is, um, if you were to visit the set of, of Straub Willey movie from what I've read, that would, uh, that, that perception might actually, uh, uh, seem to bear out because he Mm. was much more active in terms of that. And, and Danielle Willey's, uh, role. Uh, one of the essayists in this thing refers her like production type role as being something more along the lines of a line producer, like uh, oh. keeping things organized. You know, when they did uh, Moses and Aaron, which we'll get to, um, they were shooting in this one location that it was outside the city, and like a lot of what Pile was doing was like making sure the hotel rooms and the transportation back to and from set from the hotel was was good. So that did give people the impression because people think of direction as being mostly what's done on set. People right. did get the impression, but uh, it's not true. She was heavily involved in the development of screenplays. They also, for all of their films, especially the features, I guess, uh, all. How can I say all of especially? <laughs> I guess for most of their films, especially the, the features, they would rehearse for like three or four months. Oh, wow. And yeah, and that was something that Daniel Huile was much more involved in to the point that she would, because um, they, they they tailored things to the actor. Not that they would change dialogue because they were very literal. <laughs> As you, you can probably tell in watching their movies, it's very mm-hmm. straightforward and they do not like embellishment in reproduction at all. But uh, they would, but she would take note of how an actor was more comfortable saying something mm. and then would create annotated annotated versions of the screenplay that had like that, da- like dashes or 
ellipses, whatever, to 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 mimic the way that the actor talks so that he get it right. As you as you can see from watching their movies, they don't like a lot of embellishment and performance either. A lot of it is very straightforward. Right. Um, um very unaffected. Uh and uh and then of course she was also uh uh intensely involved in the editing. The one thing I didn't a bit of research I didn't get to do, I did not get a chance to watch Pedro Costa's documentary mm. Where Does Your Hidden Smile Lie, which is a documentary about them editing Cecilia, um, their nineteen eighty nine film. Uh, but I read a number of accounts of what happens in, in the movie and, and how they um, argue, but not like in like argue like collaborators, not like a married couple, but uh, sure. uh, down to like whether to end a shot. Literally a difference of one frame, like it's yeah. mul- multiple accounts of the movie, like got, mentioned that particular scene of them going back and forth about which frame to end the <laughs> shot on. Um, anyway, I'm giving a lot of backstory because I have it. Um, but, uh, we're going to jump into the movies and go, uh, chronologically as we always do. And, and, um, I should have more to add based on that, but, uh, there are a lot of movies. Um, I, I, I know that we are starting though with, uh, Machorka Muff cause that's the first one and you've seen it. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw it five years ago. So some of this is based on sketchy memory and some of this is based on reading other people's letterboxed uh, capsule reviews, which kind of reminded me a little bit of what it was all about. Um, yeah. It's a short film. It's like 18 minutes long. I didn't check, but my guess is it's probably on YouTube. A surprising number of their films are easily available on YouTube. Um, so I started to rent them through uh, Grasshopper until I discovered I didn't have to do that. <laughs> um, but the but- Grasshopper, I think all come from the restorations from this 2017 retrospective and uh, they, and they look good. Yeah. I mean, the ones that I watched at least a couple of YouTube, YouTube ones I found do. looked quite good. Okay. Um, but I want to support Grasshopper. Yeah. Yeah. yeah don't we all, um, Matrika <laughs> Muff is, you know, maybe you don't want to pay $5 for an 18 minute film. Let's put it that way. Um, Matrika right. Muff is yeah, a short s- satire on sort of, uh, positing that Germany's rearming itself, I believe, following World War II and kind of satirizing the um, nationalism and uh, sort of, you know, obviously not, I guess not overt Nazism, but certainly whenever you're dealing with German nationalism, one's mind does not go far from there. Um, Yeah, I don't remember too much of it other than it being one of their more straightforwardly engaging films as far as like having a more pointed sense of humor um certainly its length helps but um you know a certain bleak sense of humor too and this kind of set the stage for a lot of their political anger that i i think for the most part comes through more obliquely in the later films that there's i saw this felt more like a younger person's kind of like vim and vigor kind of anger um at least from how i remember it and maybe a little more faster paced as well Oh yeah, they definitely um uh their pacing changes over time. Um yeah. Uh okay, well the next step is not reconciled, which we have both seen. I more recently, as in I saw it in December. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you saw it six years ago or whatever. Um yeah. but uh not reconciled is based on a novel by Heinrich Boll, and this is um going to be uh a lot of their films are, I guess, adaptations. 
yeah reproductions um of 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 works a lot of them are we'll get to this later but a lot of them are reproductions of unfinished works um, yeah that was where it seems like they're it feels like they're well they're they're so like monastically like uh devoted to getting things as literally as possible because they don't like tricks they don't like dishonesty and i think as someone who has said multiple times that honesty is my the number one thing that i value in movies i think that uh maybe that's the reason that i feel like uh, uh so invigorated by their work there's no dishonesty and there's also no we'll get to this more later but i just have all these thoughts in my head the the dig on them for people who don't want to take the time to get to know them is often that they're they're definitely intellectuals but i don't i can't think of a filmmaker that in my opinion has more respect for their audience and more refusal to talk down to their audience and condescend to them than the films that i watched uh, uh in in research for this episode um but i mentioned their unapologeticness not reconciled is uh, a great first. I mean, it's not even a feature, really, sixty yeah. minutes or whatever. But um, it, they, you know, they were living and working in 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 Germany. The early part of their career is the Germany period, uh, and this film was very much not well received <laughs> uh, in in Germany by audiences or or by by critics uh, because it deals with this sort of like nazism but also the fact that like i was gonna say how would you describe it better uh but it's it is hard to just a lot as the movies go on but um um in chronological order um instead uh but 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 it's it it, it examines a family sort of legacy of cruelty or bigotry or hatred or uh, well so talked about the legacy i think of uh, germany had come uh, post post-World War II. There's, you know, if you been, um, you you know that they acknowledge the history and they uh, acknowledge how awful it is. They don't try to sweep it under the rug. But I think the thing that Straub is criticizing is that they also kind of behave as if it's uh, in the past and not reconciled as a movie that says, like, no, this this is part of a continuum. This is, you know, whether Nazism specifically or not, this, uh, the, the, the hatred and the, what's the word I'm looking for? The, um, uh, there's a, there's a nauseating or nauseous, a nauseous exceptionalism Mm. that he is kind of saying 
didn't go away. Still, you know, very much his his uh, um, and, and her see him doing the uh, making the mistake <laughs> again of uh, of saying his, but very much their um, uh, milieu um, is is being combative and being overtly political not reconciled i think is not uh exemplary necessarily of 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 their movies going forward i think it's good um and it definitely has some memorable imagery but uh um it's more specifically uh like point making it's 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 it it has a sort of thesis to it in a way that i think the later films um don't uh uh the uh, very man my vocabulary has evaded me today um but uh uh films very conspicuously don't have these theses uh but okay i've gone on too long what do you not reconciled scott what, what are your memories from yeah, from so long ago. Uh, well, my notes in Letterboxd are mainly saying uh, I didn't quite grok what they were laying down, other than like, yeah, that it was charting the origins and legacy of Nazism. Um, I did say uh, what comes through is a sense of the ease with which those in power deny the humanity to their fellow citizens and the petty motivators that drive them to it. Uh, I think there was maybe something in the film about... Um, the sense in which people seek power and uh, domination over others, not because of any real true ambition, but just um, a strong sense of their own, I don't know, small-mindedness, I guess, in some ways, um, and just trying to dominate the sphere there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's... It, as with most of their films, it's sort of dense and tangled and politically uh, intriguing, but hard to totally chart um, the complete through line. And I, th yeah, like I said, it was, and I'm saying now, yeah, it was a full six years ago that they showed this it was January, 2017. So it's been, been quite some time. Uh, okay. Uh, Peek behind the curtain, I got kind of booted, so I didn't hear all, everything that Scott said about Not Reconciled, but I'll, I'll bet it was brilliant. Um, sure was. So let's move on to maybe their most best-known film, would you I say? I think so. Uh, um, at least is... by the letterboxed, you know, hot ranking, it's just behind Cecilia, which I would not necessarily consider their best-known films, but it is, I think, persistently available on movie, which maybe kicks it up a notch. Right, yeah. Um... Well, uh, how did you watch this one's called, sorry, I should say this one's called Chronicle of Anna Magdalena Bach. How did you watch it? Uh, I rented this from Grasshopper, like an honorable citizen. Okay. I rented this one, um, from Apple actually. Yeah. So I'm curious what was, what language was Anna Magdalena Bach speaking in on the Grasshopper one? Oh, um, English. Okay. Then it's the same one as the, um, the uh the apple one. Oh my god i can't think today i think i'm just so thrown off by all the internet problems we're having anyway um so 
this is an interesting thing that I learned. Uh, again, going back to Danny Ophelia's um, very involved role, she was super involved in the subtitling. Like they, you know, when they would, you know, when when their movies would go to other countries, um, she would um, hire the subtitlers herself and give them instruction. And they would use like they had subtitlers that were with them for, you know, most of their careers. They would they would use the same people all the time um there's an interesting story that again speaks to this thing i'm talking about about how literal minded they uh, or how strict um in terms of reproduction they always wanted to be uh if if they were making movie in german which they did at the beginning of their career and a character used a german idiom that wasn't used in that same way in other Mm -hmm. countries Danielle Hulet would still say, just keep it the way it, it it's better to be awkward than to be inexact. <laughs> so, oh, sure. Um, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about, about how like, uh, uh, strict they were. In fact, they talked about, uh, it, it, Barbara Ulrich wrote the essay that I was mentioning about the, um, restorations. And she was talking about when they did the scans, um, it changed, you know, the digital capturing changed the way that it looked, but, and so they have, were, um, having the conundrum of like, do we try and change this image to make it look more like the film source? Right. And they decided, no, that's not something that would be dishonest in a way that Straub and Huele would have opposed. Um, uh, so anyway, that goes back to that little. So anyway, what I'm saying is um, there are like six different languages that Chronicle of Adam Magdalena Bach was made in. Oh, and the Straubin Huele directed all of the voiceover. So like, even though the maybe original right. version was in German, this, this version that we watched, which is um, someone speaking, um, English with a heavy German accent. There were yeah. times that I almost wished it was a subtitle movie because <laughs> I was like, I missed a lot of that. But um, that's still just as much a Straubwille movie because they yeah. they directed, they they cast the 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 narrator um, and and directed her as well. So this movie is, uh, I guess, it's taken from letters that. Um, so that Fox's seems to second be second wife. Yeah, I found differing reports on that. I think as to whether that, or not they're fictionalized. Yeah, I think yeah. that might they might be fictionalized. I can't think of any like that seems to be the more likely case. Okay, because I'm glad you pointed that out because, like I said, I read this collection of essays. Even within this book, there are conflicting reports oh, as interesting. to whether or not. But I I also got the impression that they wrote these. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, IMDb doesn't credit certain, the real Anna Bach. Yeah, there's a certain <laughs> directness to the phrasing of the letters. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, uh, one of the things that's, I think, interesting about old-timey correspondence is that people were just more reflexively romantic than they are now. Uh-huh. And uh, the correspondence here is very factual-based and not a lot about the experience of her life or Bach's life. Yeah, yeah, that um that Ken Burns Civil War documentary is like the example I always think of of these right. like Confederate soldiers who are not like super educated people writing these lovely letters back yeah. home. Uh yeah. 
Um, and now the kids got their dang emojis. <laughs> uh, so Carnival and Anna Magdalena Bach is based on fictionalized, we're pretty sure, uh, letters that Bach's second wife wrote to him, as I recall. Um, this one you probably see more recently, because uh, I, I know you watched a lot of these over the last week, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of the letters really seem to be almost just diary entries um, okay. because they're not necessarily like addressing Bach. They're talking about things that he did and the arc of his life, but don't seem to be for anyone in particular. They almost yeah seem like they're coming from her diary or something. Um, I found this one intermittently engaging. I think, um, one of the things I persistently struggled with throughout their work is, um, the way that they'll do these very intensely researched and carefully arranged period pieces, but also not really care that you could plainly tell it was shot whenever it was shot. Like there's no, like, there didn't seem too much attempt to hide the present. And we'll get into some examples later on where that's more overt, but I think even here, there's something in the costuming that's very artificial, um, even as the sort of instrumentation and staging of it seems more pointedly, uh, uh, ideally, trying to set it more pointedly in the past, I suppose. Uh, interestingly, um, I read Straub talking about that, that, well, that the first thing you're talking about, that the what goes into their screenplay is meticulously researched and right. real the a lot of the shooting they came up with a rigid thing we're going to do this and then whatever happened happened you know mm-hmm. um we'll get to more of that later but there's a lot of stuff in their later career that is shot outdoors and you will have like a shot reverse shot thing where the light is totally different yeah. and the version the than the first shot and that's not they don't they don't care because that's what happened there's mm-hmm. also um all of their, all the sound in their movies is live sound. They don't, yeah, like, which you can really tell Foley or anything. Yeah. Um, and so they're famous for, I'm getting ahead of myself, but, um, they're famous for a lot of their movies in their, in the, especially in the seventies and eighties, having these like long pans across landscapes, usually valleys and mountains and stuff. And, uh, there's a, an anecdote in, in here about them. Um, uh, um, choosing where to end one of the pans in a movie, not based on the imagery, but because there was a bird chirping that they liked in the tank mm. and they wanted to wait for the the bird. Uh, Straub said, don't assassinate the bird. They wanted to wait for <laughs> the bird to finish its little song. And that's when they decided to cut. Um, so there, that is a part of their aesthetic. I won't say style because uh, Straub hated the word style. Um, Classic uh, Straub. Uh, yeah. Uh, but um, that is part of their approach. But uh, yeah, so this movie has um, these long things of Anna reading her diary entry, whatever you say. Uh, there's some scenes uh, and um, it's worth noting here, the actor they have playing Bach was the person they had their heart set on. So mature come off and not reconciled were made before this, but this was the movie they started developing together that started their career that started their marriage was them coming up with this idea and developing this movie together. And they worked on it for years and years. Um, and at, at least one point, if not another point had the funding to make it, except the funder said, you have to cast this person as Bach. Mm. And they were like, no, we, and so this is more of their uncompromising nature. They were like, no, our movie has this guy playing Bach. Um, 
and um that's crucial to it so we're not going to take your money so they had to wait until they could do it their way and they made it uh but the thing i we haven't talked about yet the my favorite part of the movie is that there are multiple scenes maybe making up the bulk of the movie of just pieces Bach pieces being played um you know uh live by uh an orchestra in period uh clothing oh that's the thing i was also going to say is straub saying that um i think this was straub like because he does most of the talking so i think he was the one who said this (laughs) um that we have an idea of what like a time period really looked like based on the movies we've seen about that time period, but that the clothes and wigs in something like this are actually more, more real for these characters that they're like, Oh, interesting social status. Like he talks specifically about like, you know, men wear wigs and the wigs in this movie kind of like, they kind of shake around or whatever. Yeah. He talks about that being, I mean, I don't know how he knows he wasn't there either, but that <laughs> being more, more authentic. Um, anyway, so these scenes or these scene isn't the right word. These interstitials that, like I said, probably make up the bulk of the runtime of the movie are just pieces being performed in full with a single shot. And, uh, what I would say, I would say each one of them having its own unique and beautiful composition, Mm. uh, that, that made it, uh, I mean, these, these, these directors are um obviously based on their uh inspirations a fan of the fine arts although not as much so as you would think um uh they often made movies or claim to have made movies that are adaptations of these operas and stuff right um as a way of helping themselves to understand things that they like works that they didn't get huh. <laughs> um, so uh I, I so anyway i don't know but um there's a painting type aspect to a lot of their compositions where, uh, yeah, it, their shots hold for a long time, but when you've got an entire orchestra or, or whatever you would call a chamber orchestra, um, playing an entire piece, there's so much for you to look at and there's so much, so many little, uh, little movements. Uh, I'll, I'll quote Straub again. He did most of the talking, like I said, um, he said he wanted people watching Chronicle of Anna Magdalena Bach to take in the way that fingers move over instruments, the way that the audiences who were seeing the Lumiere brothers first films would have taken in the rustling of the leaves, right. and the wind. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's all to say. I, uh, I loved this movie. Yeah, I liked it all right. I think um, I think there's something about the stasis of their setups and the uh, lack of adornment in their lighting design that makes it a little harder to see the beauty of the fingers on the instruments that they're trying to convey. I, I think you can watch those early Lumiere Brothers shorts and instantly be taken with the wind in the trees in part because they didn't entirely know what they're doing. And so the, the lighting would really just like capture the feeling of being outside in a very kind of accidental way where you'd get like sudden lens flares or like bursts of, um, what am I trying to say of like, I'm also losing my vocabulary here because there's a thing of like, you know, a light meter where you're supposed to set it to a certain degree, um, based on the lighting available. But if they weren't, you know, setting it that purposefully, 
a sudden explosion of light would saturate the screen. Um, here, it's much more staid. And I, at least to me, the movement within the frames was not as compelling as he seems to be intending it to be. No, it was to me. Uh, <laughs> but that's the nature of, you know, art, right? Absolutely. Um, people see different things. Uh, I did, I did so like that you get a, a sense here of the practical realities of being a great artist. Um, that it, there's a lot in the correspondence that's concerned with like, and this is how he funded this. And then he had to do this job. And it's like, he couldn't just sit around being a genius musician all the time. Like dude had to hustle. Uh, yeah, probably something that, um, Straubin who very much related to. Sure. About him. Uh, now for my next one, I'm jumping all the way to 1974. That's 1967 going all the way to 74. Unless you have something. I got between. two in between. Okay. Um, the first one. I'm glad you focused more on the German period than I did. Uh, wasn't by design. And in fact, the next one I'm talking about, uh, at least when I, the version I saw was in French. Um, Oh, I didn't realize. See, I didn't even realize they made a movie in French. Um, it's spelled Othon. I'm sure given the French okay. of it all, it uh, has a different pronunciation. Yeah. Um, so one of the things we'll be talking about as we go along, and I'm not sure the extent to which you encountered this, depending on the sources of uh, the films, how you saw them, is they had, a similar actually to Jean-Luc Godard, uh, somewhat of a testier relationship with subtitling. And so in some of their films, there will be long stretches of dialogue that go completely unsubtitled. Uh, that shit drives me crazy. Good for you guys. Um, I, I can I can read and watch at the same time. Don't worry. <laughs> or at least I thought so until I saw this film, which is like wall to wall dialogue and was, you know, I guess, thankfully, fully subtitled in the YouTube version I saw, but was impossible to keep up with in terms of like because the actors are speaking so fast and there's so much dialogue and there's only so you know long a subtitle can sit when you're trying to translate all of it so kudos to whatever uh, you know unaffiliated nerd sat down and actually translate and put the subtitles together but um it was a, a it, difficult one to uh follow it's where are you sure they were like third party subs um, I guess I'm just taking as inspiration the idea that in every other like official release film of theirs I saw, there was big patches of non-subtitled dialogue. And I know that they did that in part because they didn't they wanted to convey like the meaning of it and less mm -hmm. like uh the point by point um everything that's being said and wanted people to be able to focus on the images to a degree. So I'd be surprised, but I, I couldn't okay. say for sure. Yeah, this is an adaptation of a tragedy from 1664. Um, I'm reading this straight off of Letterboxd, uh, which in turn was based on an episode of Imperial Court Intrigue uh, chronicled in Tacitus's histories, histoires. Um, they use kind of classical costuming, you know, a lot of togas and... Um, actors reading things you know in somewhat flat diction as is very common for the, especially their earlier stuff i think the later stuff i saw there tends to be a bit more actoral flourishes um and i definitely you know got the sense that there was some court intrigue here um got the sense of a classical drama but i, I think this is where i start to come up at, at odds with their work is that i like a little drama in, in my drama um i i found sometimes their lack of style 
uh, very distancing and not very involving. And whereas, you know, where Godard could engage with that sort of thing too, but I always got a stronger sense of personality. I, in much of their films, I didn't really get a sense of how they saw the world beyond um, something that they could have conveyed through an essay or something, which isn't to say their films are essayistic. I don't think they are. It's just that um, there's a certain reproductive quality to how they interpret these classical dramas that doesn't feel like it really comes from an emotional center. And for me, um, I, I think I just need like some, some emotional hook on it all. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't seen this one, but that's, um, that's very much by design. They, um, uh, especially as they went on, they did not want to ever impose a point of view, um, on, God forbid you on, have a point of view, films. you know, <laughs> uh, I think they would say they have a point of view, but they <laughs> were allergic to imposing a point of view. Um, uh, Straub again, because he does a little talking, <laughs> uh, referred to it as um, getting, having a viewpoint opposed on you is, even if it's a, a positive viewpoint, uh, is like getting hit on the head. And even if you get hit on the head with the best of intentions, it still hurts. <laughs> yeah, I think just for me, like art's all about getting a window into someone else's soul. And I, I just didn't, you know, whatever soul they're trying to convey, I only intermittently got a glimpse of through these films. Um, yeah, I mean, th their films do because there's there's so much adaptation that their films do not stand apart from the continuum of art that they're reproducing and aren't meant to. Mm. So it does almost sometimes feel like not, it, it feels almost like I'm engaging in a form of not criticism, but like almost open-ended analysis as opposed mm -hmm. to um like this isn't a straubwillet film this is a treatise on this uh i'm trying i'm forgetting who wrote the play uh othon um corneal is that his name oh yeah pure, pure corneal um it's about him uh uh anyway by the way i looked it up uh this film is for, is in french but uh, as you said i'm not saying i doubted you but it is a west german <laughs> Is a German West German production. Oh sure, in yeah. French, shot in Italy. Classic. Um, the next film dives right into Italy. It's called History Lessons. Um, this was definitely pro definitely probably that's a fun phrase. Um, I would say the more intriguing of their setups of the nine films I've seen in sort of like the loose design of it, not always necessarily translating to uh form of engagement that i can really hang with but um i liked what they were going for anyway here um it's set in contemporary rome but it's just about this guy kind of wandering around and it's got three sequences that are like totally my bag where this guy's literally they spend an entire mag of film just filming this guy driving around rome and I'm like, yeah. tight. This I can hang with. <laughs> uh, I, I, could, I would be happy to spend the entire 88 minutes of the runtime with just that. Um, unfortunately, he does stop along the way to uh, talk with ancient Romans about the economic and political manipulation of ancient Roman society, which got a little harder to follow. Um, 
I, I love to see a vision of Rome in 1972, real swing in time, um, gets the street scenes, get the guy, you know, almost running people over. And what's great, of course, about European roadways is that they were not designed for cars at all and not reconstructed for cars at all. Um, they're just like these tiny <laughs> little avenues that people have to dive around and try to make work with cars. And so he'll like get to midway down a road and then there's another car coming the other way. So one of them has to stop and back up and let the other guy through. Um, all that stuff was aces. Um, the conversations with ancient Romans, um, I definitely found harder to follow and definitely the intermittent subtitling didn't help. Um, where it'd be like, Oh, now this is the line I get to know what they're saying. Oh, this is the line. I don't know what they're saying. And how do I connect the two? Who can say, um, I, I, it frustrates me when Godard does it, and it frustrated me here as well. Uh, this is uh, an adaptation of a uh, Bertolt Brecht novel. I, I can't remember if you said that, um, but uh, Bertolt Brecht was uh, clearly their their hero. Uh, it was not the. It, this is not the last time that their um, uh, work overlapped with with his, um, and he similarly was um an artist who uh intentionally alienated the audience and thought that art should should do that um and so things like not translating all the subtitle <laughs> not, not subtitling all the dialogue is very brechtian uh from my yeah. understanding don't don't quote me as like some sort of brecht expert this comes from me reading about him uh but um I'm not. I'm not trying to argue against your distaste for it. No, it doesn't I, bother me. That but, I um, argue against my distaste all all night. I, I think, but I'm just saying it's part of their. That is their worldview. You said they don't. You don't have a <laughs> worldview. That is their worldview. Their worldview is be, denying you shit. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, at least Brecht has some good jokes along the way. You know. <laughs> okay, so now we're moving on to 1974 and their final German film. Um, again, uh, so. History Lessons is an adaptation of an unfinished novel. Moses and Aaron, or Moses und Aaron, um, is an adaptation of an unfinished opera. No, I have this uh, down as 75. Why do I have this down as 75? That's weird. It might be. I'm going for the filmography that's printed in the back of this this book. It, ah, uh, it could be 75. You got the internet, David. Um, but it's just easy to have it right here. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, whatever, whatever year you want to call it, uh, 1974, 75, um, Moses and Aaron is an adaptation of an unfinished opera by Arnold Schoenberg, who, again, an artist they clearly liked and, and did more than uh, um, one movie uh, w about his work. Um, this movie was shot uh, entirely outdoors. You talked about the lighting in Chronicle of Anna Magdalene Bach. They clearly liked shooting outdoors because they didn't like artificial lighting. Yeah. Um, so that a lot of their stuff takes place outdoors. Uh, this one's entirely outdoors, although some of it takes place at night. So obviously there's there's artificial light there. I can't remember. Did, I haven't asked you. Did you watch this one? I did. Uh, okay. I like uh, parts of it. Yeah. It, it, it's um, shot entirely in, um, uh, and the ruins of an old Roman, I guess, arena, um which i think they uh, spent like years looking for a setting for this yeah I read. yeah that's very like them um yeah. and uh yeah it, so it has uh this i would describe this and and other people that i read these essays with described this as their most accessible film because of the simple fact that it 
it tells a story and because everyone is singing they can't do that flat affect thing right like so um uh and it also like it has uh uh, i've talked before about like minimalist type of films which um again these guys didn't like anything anyone ever said about their films so they hate when their films are called minimalist (laughs) but they clearly are um yeah they were real cantankerous cranks um sometimes stepping over overboard especially straub i don't know if you know about what he said at the venice film festival in the 2000s um he said i'm paraphrasing but i'm pretty sure i have it as long as there is a mere american imperialist capitalism in the world there will never be enough terrorists that's what he said (laughs) (laughs) so uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure I agree with this conclusion, but just the phrase <laughs> "there can never be enough terrorists." Yes, it's a, it's a it's a good turn of phrase. Uh, yeah, um, a lot of people distance themselves from him. <laughs> uh, that time. Um, but uh, what was I saying about the minimalism? Okay, so yeah, the something that happens in their movies a lot of it is like there's very they come up with a framing they. They use it and uh, shots last a long time so that when there is something like a pan, which they do beautifully, I think uh, and it's one of the things they're best known for are these kind of slow pans. Um, although Moses and Aaron has some kind of faster pans too, from like Moses and Aaron to the chorus um, or something happens later in this film, which is like short shots with blackness in between yeah. just sound Um uh it can become quite stirring so the 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 sort of like golden calf section of the i'm just here assuming everyone's familiarity with the story of moses uh the golden calf section um goes as, as by their standards especially uh pretty nuts you know yeah. you got people running around I naked you quite, got a guy on fire yeah. it's quite yeah. taken by surprise by that section of it uh given that i mean like you said that you can only get away with so much flat affect when you got people singing i would say this among the flatter singing i've seen performed you know it, <laughs> they they definitely try it wasn't for like maybe that's but, just how the germans do it though well that could be true um yeah but then that section was like oh shit's going down now yeah yeah um yeah i, I like this one pretty well i definitely think it it's probably the more straightforwardly beautiful of their films in terms of the other yeah, lighting design and the setting of it all. I, I do think a lot of the first section is a little flat for me um, in terms of how it's presenting groups of people singing in terms of, you know, sometimes you get those like not special effects sequences in films like this, where they're like, cut to a staff and then cut away and then cut back and this is a snake and it's like kind of charming but there's something yeah. about like how rigorous the rest of the film is that like those little ramshackle things just feel like yeah there could have been like a slightly fancier way of doing it uh but they would have considered that a lie yeah i'm sure they yeah. would <laughs> uh, i'm glad you said rigorous i should have been saying that the whole time that's like the word for their yeah their films uh this movie was also uh, part of the reason it was seen as so accessible it was um well-received in the States. There's one of the essays in this book is entirely about the history of their films being distributed into the English speaking world. Um, mm. And this one was kind of big in the States because it came to the States in 76 during the 76 uh, 
presidential campaign. So this this movie about two guys by like who are both offering different sort of perspectives of how to lead a group of people. Sure. Um, I think was was taken as uh, politically relevant um, by the by the U.S. audiences. Uh, who, who some of whom still liked them but uh then what happened was they went to italy and Watch uh um uh, the the movies they made in this next period uh which i like the ones that i've seen um turned off uh some of their uh uh previous supporters um so uh for uh fortini canny is the first uh, Italian film and uh, go ahead. Cause I haven't seen. It. Yeah. Okay. Um, this, uh, when I saw it back in 2017, I, I liked this considerably more than not reconciled. If only cause I could somewhat follow it a little bit more. I didn't know when the film started that like the spare subtitling was intentional. And I was like, these lazy bastards assembling this print. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's still more of this came through to me than some of their other works that use a similar kind of, thing uh basically it's about uh this italian communist essayist uh franco fortini reading excerpts of uh his kind of landmark book which translates to the dogs of sinai um i pretty much just going to read what i wrote in letterbox because it's probably a better encapsulation than i could come up with now but i said uh, those sections look back on his jewish heritage having survived in europe through world war ii and seeing authoritarian regimes continually pop up even after the world society successfully defeated and condemned fascism in Europe. Uh, he notes the vile racism expressed towards people of Arab descent and the way Israel had taken on certain authoritarian characteristics, despite having risen as an escape from precisely that. Um, I think what stood out to me most at the time is that like, well, it's, it's kind of interesting. It speaks more as uh, much to the time in which it was made, you know, the mid seventies as it does anything else. But it's ironic, of course, that like, he'll be reading these sections of the book that are very polemic and very like aggressively communist, but he, dude's like living in luxury. He's like in this gorgeous Italian countryside and just like this, not like the most vast estate, but you know, he's living well for himself. Um, and I'm not sure the extent to which that was like their purpose in making it, but it's kind of just an interesting document of both a time in which, you know, communist thinkers could make a decent living but also just the distance at which um he ends up living from some of the ideals he expresses um so it's an interesting film well worth seeking out um and i didn't see too many i don't i think this is the only like straightforward documentary of theirs i saw but i'd be curious to see more because i wonder if their approach i might find more compelling in documentary form uh yeah i i saw at least i saw one or two i think that would qualify um yeah. so next for me is from the cloud to the resistance which i wanted to see but i didn't get around to yeah this one i re- i really liked it's it's um it's an ad- adapted adapted from two different novels by cesare uh cesare pavise i think sure um and so it actually has two segments the first segment is actually six segments um, <laughs> it's it's six dialogues it take place in sort of the ancient period it, it it opens with a um man talking to a goddess um uh who 
cares about him but he's saying i'm going to do my own thing uh but then it, it has um uh i think and it's, the second one is um imagining oedipus as a young man on the road to wherever um uh but after he's killed his father if that makes sense right okay uh, oh yeah because he kills his father early i haven't read Oedipus since i was in high school so i'm sorry um Anyway, uh, I'm trying to remember all of them because there's six. I'm not going to remember all of them. Uh, one of them is two hunters. This is the one I really loved. Um, uh, two hunters talking about a man who might have been a comrade of theirs, a fellow hunter whom they killed because he turned. He's he didn't literally turn into an animal, but he started acting like an animal, and they killed him. And they're on either side of whether or not they should have done that. Um, but uh, that that rigor is is there, you know. That entire first section of the the um, man talking to the goddess. The goddess is sitting up a tree, up in a tree. He's standing on the ground, and it's just like a back and forth, just like there's like two shots, and they just repeated those uh, for that entire little segment. The Oedipus one is even more rigorous where it's a single shot from the back of the cart. You barely, it's two guys talking, but you barely even see only if they turn far enough to toward each other, do you even see their faces? Mm. It's mostly just the back backs of their heads. But the Hunter one has a few, uh, uh, I don't know, flights of, of, of fancy. There's, um, uh, it takes place at night and, uh, one of the men is, if as I recall, one of the men is seated and one of the men is standing. But there's also a shot of uh, a wolf who's lying on a nearby rock that it keeps returning to. And one of the the men's uh, swords or or daggers or whatever is lying on the rock next to this wolf. And just this uh, this shot of a wolf uh, lying on a rock with the probably fake moonlight glistening off of this dagger is uh, really stunning to me uh really beautiful so i can't remember all of those and then the second half of the movie um takes place in the 20th century based on a different previously novel about a man uh returning to his small town or his village i guess that he grew up in after a long time away uh which obviously will be the subject of a later uh <laughs> um uh, uh movie that we've already mentioned cecilia uh but um uh he 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 comes he comes back and and uh the town has changed drastically from the war most of the people that he knew were gone or dead um and uh he's just having conversations with the when you watch all these movies in a long in a short yeah. time sometimes things so i can't remember who the other guy the guy is like a local government official i can't remember now um but he's basically walking around the entire movie talking to this guy about the town and how things have changed but then there's also this kid um uh who's who's around uh and they um he gives the kid a knife um uh or he offers the kid he was like do you want i can't really do you want money or do you want a knife maybe it was like candy or a knife and he was like the kid's like i'll take the knife and he's like um and what if your father takes this away from you and says the kid says uh if my father tries to take the knife away from me i'll kill him (laughs) (laughs) um uh and so i think this movie um oh yeah there uh i think the final segment um 
in the first half. The first half is really the best part. The second half is good too. But the first half is really all, all these little dialogues. The final one is this guy has come from one part of ancient Rome to another where they have different traditions and he um the and different religious traditions and he has come ostensibly to volunteer to be a sacrifice to uh these people's god that they have to sacrifice one person a virile person uh in the fields every year to keep the crop uh uh growing so he's ostensibly come to do that but we realize over the course of his dialogue with the head of this town um uh his real sort of uh rhetorical um um goal is he eventually makes the case that this guy has benefited from generations of these uh, uh, sacrifices. His family have become who they are and have become wealthy who, uh, because of this. And he argues that your blood is so imbued with the power that if we just sacrifice you instead, the town will never have to sacrifice anyone ever again. <laughs> um, so you get their, their leftism very much coming across sure. uh, there. Um, uh, but I guess in a different way than um, not reconciled, but similar, the movie is, I think, making a point of like, we think that we have, we like to think that we have progressed, but some things, um, some there's, there's some sort of uh, barbarism or deceit um, in that, that has always been a part of, 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 of humanity. Um or maybe specifically of Italy is um, it wouldn't be beyond Straubman who to make that kind of sure. uh, argument. They were very critical of specifically like Western European nations. That was what they knew. And that was what they chose to criticize. They didn't weirdly didn't spend a lot of time um, criticizing the U S they um, were happy to visit the two times. I think they visited the U S uh, and also um Straub once said that he preferred negative reviews written by Americans, American critics to negative reviews written by German critics because at least the American critics could be funny. Uh, there you go. <laughs> uh thought like there was something else I was gonna say about this, and I'll like fucking kick myself uh sure. if I later when I remember what it was. But uh yeah, so yeah, we we're three into the Italian period and uh I think it's going pretty well. Um but I'm jumping all the way to the 80s next for class. Yeah, my next one is 84. Your next as well. Yeah, 84. Is that class relations or? Is yeah, that... yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so class relations um, is the only uh, of the ones I've watched. The only one that maybe has um, a challenge to Moses and Aaron is being uh, most accessible because it is just a straightforward story. Yeah, as far uh, as their sort of thing goes, yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's e- relatively easy to follow, and not a lot of plot developments anyway. But also just yeah. adapted from a well-known novel, which helps. Yeah, a Franz Kafka uh, novel. Um, uh, so um, it's about a young, like middle-class man, right? He's like, yeah, holds, he's supposed to be like eighteen or so. Yeah, um, recently coming to his own, as it were. Yeah, uh, he's been shipped off. Uh, to the U.S. The Franz Kafka novel is called America. Um, the K. 
Right. Yeah. Not with three K's. Guys <laughs> no. Q, uh, would, would have us uh, spell it. But um, uh, yeah, so he comes to uh, uh, America and um, I guess uh, has a series of odd jobs. <laughs> um, yeah, but sure. how would, but it, he's, he's got this, um, well, it's all, it, it's hard to like detect and all that flat affect. Uh, but he seems to have some sort of, is it ambition or is it just an assumption of his, uh, uh, righteousness or his better, his place in the world? I don't know how you would I, yeah, describe I, his attitude. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but I think I would ascribe it more to, yeah, an assumption of, privilege coupled with um the feeling of america as the land of opportunity so he's like well if i'm privileged in the land of opportunity clearly things are going to start happening for me yeah um okay uh yeah i'm not going to try and pretend we didn't just have a little stop down because of more um so we were talking about class relations i don't remember i don't know where i was when we when I, when I dropped out, um, but I think I was saying that like, uh, it's, this isn't necessarily my favorite, um, but there's a lot of things that are interesting about it. If I give some backstory, uh, this was their second time in, um, in the U S and, uh, also their second time in their, during their first trip, to the u.s when they were um touring around with uh with a few of their films uh um straub told daniel talbot of the new yorker who uh distributed most of their early uh films um in in the u.s that when he was booking the sort of tour around uh the u.s and canada to show these films um the only thing that was imperative to Straub was that he get to see the Mississippi river. So that's <laughs> why they uh, stopped in St. Louis and showed some films at a university there, but I guess they liked it enough that they came back. Uh, so most of this is a, this is an Italian film. Most of it is shot in studios in, in Italy. Um, well, the, the characters are speaking German, of course, because it's Kafka. Right, right. Um, uh, but um there are two sections. There's a brief uh, thing they shot in New York when he arrives and gets off the boat. They actually shot that at the harbor in, in New York where someone would get off a, a, a boat. And then um, the entire section on the train was shot on an Amtrak train running from St. Louis to Jefferson City, Missouri, um, because uh, a section of that uh, line, which I have written on, uh, goes past the, the Missouri River for a time and they wanted a train going alongside a river. Sure. <laughs> so they shot that entire thing, uh, on, on an Amtrak. Um, the other thing that's very interesting about this and their approach is that each, for each scene in the movie, they picked a place where they would put the camera. So like the framing might change and I don't, I don't know if lenses change. I can't remember, uh, or, or not, but the, the fucking like tripod the camera's on is in one place for the entirety of that scene. Uh, and that's something they do in each scene in this movie. It's part of their rigor. Um, uh, there's also things that are like, if you know about them when you're watching, they're so literal minded, but I actually think they're very um, uh, helpful. Um, the character being middle-class, but having connections to, you know, politicians and upper class but also like working these menial jobs the way that he is framed 
who's in the frame with him will depend on his stat- status in any hmm. particular scene. So like when he's on the boat at the beginning and he's getting in trouble, he's framed with the, like uh, the stoker or whatever you call the guy who uh, does the steam, like the coal, the coal shoveler guy right. he's framed with him. But then once he's offered this chance to go to, to America, he, they frame him so that the, the coal shoveler guy is no longer in the same frame with him because he's now he's leaving that strata and moving to somewhere, somewhere else. Um, and that's the thing they do, uh, throughout the movie. Um, last bit of trivia on this movie. Um, the, uh, anecdotally, I don't know for sure this is true. Um, but the unused black and white stock they had when this, when they were done with this movie was donated to Jim Jarmish, who was making Stranger Than Paradise at the time, yeah. and needed black and white footage, black and white uh, film. Well, I am much more fond of Stranger Than Paradise than I am of any of these, but um, I, I there was a lot <laughs> of immediate appeal, I think, in the black and white sort of. You know, it's not as stylish as the Trial, certainly, but I think it has a similar sort of perspective on Kafka, and um, I think you are articulating it in that way, kind of brought out uh the sense of things i was getting in terms of how it was staging his alienation uh, among society um okay i missed some of that because of internet issues but uh i'm sure again i'm sure it was great obviously <laughs> i've only got one more you've only got one more which one is it cecilia Oh, okay. Well, uh, I'm going to talk about Black Sin real quick. We're going again. Uh, <laughs> keep having internet problems. We're just going to power through. Uh, so they made back-to-back. They made The Death of Empedocles and Black Sin. I didn't see The Death of Empedocles, but uh, these are both um, based... They're basically both the same story. Um, uh, the The same playwright i guess wrote like three completely different versions of the same story and they adapted two of them <laughs> um but uh black sin is only like about 45 50 minutes long um this one i'm with uh scott of like i don't really know what was what's happening <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a lot of outdoor like uh uh ancient rome costumes and and conversations but uh not being able to necessarily follow what it was about kind of did let me focus more on their style. Yeah, that's right, Strauss. I called it style. Um, Watch out. Yeah. Uh, especially as it pertains to this this period of the career um, where they're shooting outdoors on mountaintops overlooking valleys, um, beautiful framing, letting the film road run for long periods of time, and then occasionally interrupting it with slow pans around the, the valley. And so the things that... Um, uh that that they love uh you know that 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 scott was talking about them being like very meticulous in development but then like kind of like you know letting it fly when they're shooting in terms of just like the sun going behind a cloud or whatever there's um animals that you know wander by there's actually they did so many takes and this is something they always did in fact they were they were very frugal filmmakers um uh but uh Huile said their only luxury is stock they bought a lot of stock and they did a ton of takes of of everything um oh another interesting um 
very leftist thing about all of their film sets. The crew got paid at the beginning of every week, not at the end of every week. Yeah, good for them. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, so Black Sin is an interesting one in that I don't I don't know which version was on Grasshopper, but there are I don't know. And I don't know if all of these still even exist anymore, but there are one time there were at one time four different versions of Black Sin that were the exact same order of shots and construction but all different takes hmm. um and uh they were made for different festivals they would edit together different uh versions for like different festivals i guess and um i guess like among the straw uh maniacs um they're referred to as like the lizard version and the fox version because like the animals that happen to be in the shot like this one you know has uh lizards that runs through the frame oh interesting that's, that's the lizard version um anyway so yeah the um so that's plexi and i don't have much more to say about it because again i don't really understand what happened in it but um uh i enjoyed watching it especially for you know a 45 minute movie sure uh, Another on the one on the shorter side is another documentary. So maybe it's, it's for you. Uh, although it wasn't for the museum that commissioned it, <laughs> who, re- who rejected it. Uh, Cezanne dialogue with jo- Joachim or Joachim. Uh, well, I guess it's French. So it'd be Joachim Gasquet. Anyway, uh, it is ostensibly a documentary about Cezanne. It, uh, barely shows any Cezanne paintings. They, uh, they didn't want to show any at all, uh, initially because, um, uh of their uh, strict belief that um cinema is photography not painting and um they would have hated i'm sure they did hate like cgi because um the idea of something being in the frame that wasn't in front of the camera is uh uh would have made them vomit i think <laughs> um so there's very little um of um Cezanne there's actually like the the main image that I think of uh and that pops up repeatedly in in this this book actually um is just a shot of a mountain as it currently existed in the late 80s um with uh like buildings and stuff in front of it like modern buildings and that's in place of a mountain that says and painted more than once they just showed mm. here's what it looks like now like kind of mimicking the like distance and angle and framing but um but they never show you the uh the Cezanne version for comparison they just opt to show you the real like modern day version uh in instead um it uh it it, it has um yeah, I, I can't say that I learned much about Cezanne, but um, they were obsessed with Cezanne. Uh, so, this, hmm. you know, it makes sense. They made um, uh, at least one movie about him, probably more. There's 50 something movies here. Uh, more stories from when they visited um, the U.S. They um, when they were in Chicago, they went to the Art Institute, not to see the paintings, but specifically to see the Cezannes. That's all they cared about, hmm. was to go see the Cezannes. And then when they were in New York, they hitchhiked to uh, some town or city, small city in Pennsylvania that has a collection of Cezannes that don't travel, or at least not at this time they didn't. They were like permanent fixtures and that. So the only way to see them in person was to, to hitchhike to them, which... Um, is a, an illustration of their uh, uh, 
doggedness, but also like weirdly an encapsulation of their entire like philosophy of how you engage with art that you need to come to it and not expect it to come to you uh in any way whatsoever um so yeah that's them and suzanne um the the movie is very interesting it has a lot of uh uh shots and and um it has uh i can't remember who the interviews are with these all are kind of running together, but um, if you want to know what Danielle Huile sounded like, because uh, as I said, she didn't talk all that much. Um, she is reading um, most uh, or uh, a lot of the narration in in Cezanne, reading other people's letters and interviews. Um, uh, okay, let's move on to Antigone, uh, which is the next uh, Bertolt Brecht. Not that Bertolt Brecht wrote Antigone, obviously Sophocles, right? I'm not. I'm not looking that up. I'm just saying. I'm not uh, that remember. smart. I think it's Sophocles. All right, I'm, but I'm going to go with that. Uh, but it's it's their adaptation of a Bertolt Brecht adaptation of of Antigone, um, and this one has the uh, well, like Moses and Aaron, it's shot in uh, the ruins of an arena, but a different one, um, and it has an even more rigorous. Uh, uh, stylistic again whatever structural approach than class relations i mentioned class relations they picked a a fixed point for the camera to be in every scene for antigone it's the entire movie because it's all one location even though it's supposed to be like you know different parts it's all shot in one location but they i guess they got there they put the tripod down and they were like this is where the camera's gonna be (laughs) for the entire shoot now like i said the camera moves the frames are different or whatever but you are seeing the 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 arena from the same vantage point for the entire movie. Um, uh, Now I I know they were uh, opposed to changing too much uh, when they adapted stuff, but from what I understand, they did take out in Breck's adaptation of Antigone, the um, modern day politics were, more overt and gotcha. the fact that it's like a world war two that he, he turned it into like a world war post a Europe post world war two sort of, uh, allegory. They took out a lot of those direct, uh, uh, references, but, um, I think it's still meant to be imbued with, uh, um, a political point of view, but it's still, uh, Antigone. And, um, it definitely stylistically fits in with what I was saying about certain parts of, from the class of the resistance, definitely blacks, blacks in, um, uh, and going back to Moses and Aaron, there's, um, a, a lot of seeing, uh, you know, one person on one side and then the reverse shot will be three people that were facing him in a direct line, but we see them at an angle because the camera can't move. Um, and uh uh there's the the pans and 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 all of the stuff that really defines this period of their of their work um uh but also uh, you know, very much the um uh you were saying how obvious it was that they all only use recorded live sound they didn't sweeten anything they didn't do any ADR um and these this and black sin you can really tell there's a uh one of the I guess essays or or things in this book is a as a collection of like remembrances of people by people who worked with them and their sound recordist guy their sound guy talked about in these outdoor scenes you're seeing wide shots and so um the microphone would have to be 
a fair amount away from the person talking. Oh, so sure. it, wasn't in, it wasn't in the shot, but they liked that because it picked up more nature sounds. They, they, they wanted that Huile especially would um, for their movies after every take, you know, Straub would be like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm good with that take, but Huile would have to listen, not watch, but just listen back <laughs> to the take before sure. she could sign off on it. And they would, and they would, and they would move on. Um, so I mentioned, yeah, I should have mentioned that with Black Sin too. Black Sin and Antigone are um, uh, very um, good exemplars of of that. Okay, you've got one more. I've got two more, but our next one is the same. So uh, 1999's Cecilia, it's breaking my heart, shaking my cup. I know, I couldn't help it um, the entire movie, having that yeah. song runs in my head. Um, uh, yeah, yeah this go was, ahead, I've talked a lot. You referred to this earlier um, in terms of a uh, guy coming coming back into Italy um, and bopping around to a few different people and kind of having these long conversations. I I like this more at the start where they have a little bit more pointed and um, interesting camera angles than I think I've seen from them to this point. Uh, by the time then in the second half, it devolves into a single room uh, where it's just the guy and his mother. You know, I mean, I think it's some interesting territory in terms of one's legacy and what one owes to their family and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it, it just wasn't as cinematically interesting in the second back half as it was in the first. Um, but it's, it was interesting between this and class relations to see them kind of evolving a little bit in terms of their approach to acting. You know, I'd still say the affectation is overall flat, but it's almost like it's flat at a higher register. If that makes sense. It's like everyone's kind of performing in the same way, but at a higher uh, stake than they had been in uh, the prior films, which was much more like almost monotone. Here, you got people like overtly shouting at each other. And, you know, one can ascribe cultural uh, stereotypes to the difference between working with German actors and Italian actors. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that's not all that came into play. Uh, yeah, I'll go even beyond that and say uh, Gianni Buscarino uh, gives the best performance that I've seen in any Straub movie. I, I, I loved his, like, he's obviously a thoughtful person, but he's also like quick tempered and pugnacious. Um, he's got like a slight, uh, almost lisp, um, that weirdly makes him seem like an even tougher guy, uh, in, in a way that is hard to describe. Um, uh i uh, another, another scene that because I, I haven't seen pedro costa's documentary where does your hidden smile lie but um there is a i guess pedro costa shot them shooting gianni uh, buscarino on the train and i mentioned them like um paying their crew at the beginning of the week they were also incredibly gracious toward their actors and um uh apparently um at, when they're done shooting the the scene daniel hule says uh shouts i will never forget you gianni buscarino <laughs> <laughs> um uh also they i don't know what they uh they didn't uh they didn't do action and cut like like clint eastwood you know how he oh sure I remember, um um they would it wasn't always the same but straub who would do the in-person direction while they were shooting would usually start scenes by saying, if you please, and <laughs> end them by saying, okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so it's really interesting to see like interviews with them and, and they're like, 
uh, sparring, especially Straub, like sparring with other filmmakers that he hated most other movies and with, uh, with critics and, and with audiences, but to see with the people they worked with, um, they were clearly so generous, um, and, and, and loving. They also, uh, they would at the end of every day send the crew home and they would clean up and then take the film to the lab themselves nice. uh, because they they wanted their crew to be able to go home and have dinner and have a good night's sleep and stuff um seemed like it seemed like a fun set to to work on but yeah. um uh yeah i i like i like cecilia um uh quite a bit um but i think i already kind of talked about the reasons why i like uh jenny buscarino i like the, i like the character whose name is oh he doesn't have a name um uh but uh yeah there's yeah there's a part of the train and there's the you you mentioned the the you refer to the second half and the long scene with the mother in the house but that's actually not the end no that's true they do have one kind yeah, of wrap-up scene the end of of the scene is him um talking to a guy who a knife sharpener like a street uh knife sharpener and um that uh uh that discussion i think um feels like in a way that i i, I don't know i think it's maybe good i obviously think it's good but i think it's maybe good the thing you were talking about but uh, that you didn't like about them not imposing a point of view because i do wonder how much they would have come across as condescending if they impose too much of their point of view like yeah but i don't mind condescending like i talked uh, about this with the godard episode dude condescended all day and like i can hang i can <laughs> <laughs> but i i mean some of, I, I think some of their ideas about the working class were the kind of ideas that intellectual liberals have about the working class maybe a bit of like uh insulting romanticism um sure but uh because of their dedication to just translating things straight across they didn't have a um they didn't give themselves the opportunity to put their thumb on the scale too much with that um so i uh um i quite like this this final scene with the uh, um with gianni buscrino and the and the knife sharpener uh so that's it for you uh i have one more which um is uh was made after huile's death but she is credited it's a documentary mm. called the itinerary of jean bricard um it's from 2008 because the reason she's that straub credited her is because they de they developed the movie and were developing this this documentary um while she got sick from the cancer that killed her in 2006 um and then they were supposed to shoot it that year they weren't able to so he wasn't able to finally shoot the movie until late 2007 it came out in 2008 um but so he did maintain her credit um, uh, as as co-director uh, for the movie, even though it was actually filmed um, more than a year after she passed away. But um, this is a documentary about uh, Jean Picard, who I've uh, not Jean Luc Picard. Uh, <laughs> I keep Jean, hearing it that way, but yeah, yeah, I, um, who I've now forgotten who that even is, um, <laughs> uh, because he's not physically in the movie. His um, uh, uh the film uh, da, 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 da. so um um oh i guess he's a a writer uh, of some sort anyway uh the he, he he grew up on 
an island off the coast of Italy. Or no. France? His name is Jean Ricard. It doesn't matter. The point is, he grew up on an island. And the film is composed entirely of shots of that island as it exists now. Kind of echoes of the Cezanne thing, showing the mountain as it is now instead of as it was in the in the painting. We don't see... We hear... We never see Jean Ricard either. The entire movie is soundtracked by um, him talking about his childhood on the island. We're seeing it now. We're mostly seeing it from the shore in boats. Uh, when I say the movie soundtrack by Jean Ricard, it is also because this is the way that Strauss-Hulé made movies soundtracked by the roar of the boat engine. Sure. Um, so you're hearing water and you're hearing this boat go, but you're also hearing him talking uh, the entire time. And um, uh, uh, it's all in black and white. You're seeing shots of this island, mostly from the water. But then, like I said, there are some, uh, shots on the land, um, shots that maybe Jean Bricard's childhood home. It's not entirely clear. Well, I guess at one point it is pretty clear because he talks about like where the um, the stove was, and and we see the stove. So I think it is is his childhood home. Godfrey, I know Strauss Hule wouldn't shoot another home and say it was his home. That would be completely <laughs> against their philosophy of filmmaking. Uh, but uh, again, this one's only about an hour long. But something about the sound of the water and the engine and the um uh the the voice of john picard and these um lovely black and white compositions uh is really intoxicating i i i I, um really found this movie to be uh, uh quite compelling uh it's it's sad that it's um the end for them uh, sure. um, or the you know um, it's sad to end on this to end on a movie that Daniel Hillet died developing um, I didn't watch any of uh, Straub's many movies that he made yeah. uh, uh, after that because even though we did this inspired you know because Straub dying I really wanted this profile to be Straub Hillet yeah um, absolutely yeah so uh, feels a bit scattered because of our internet issues um but we got to the end of it um there's probably more things that i wanted to say that i read in this in this uh this book that was really interesting but we don't have time we gotta we gotta go while the internet is working absolutely um uh yeah you can uh Find us at battleshippretension.com. You can email me at david at battleshippretension.com. Email Tyler at tyler at battleshippretension.com. Maybe someone will read it to him. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Davey Pretension. Check out my other podcast, the one where I met your mother. My wife and I watch an episode of Friends and an episode of How I Met Your Mother every week. Um, this week, we got a, a good um, a guest star on How I Met Your Mother, the great Francis Conroy. Always been a fan of Francis Conroy. Yeah, right on. Shows up in anything. Um so uh check that out that's all there uh scott where do you want people to find you oh uh, yeah you can try me on twitter if you dare um letterbox pretty solid as well and uh yeah back here next week for i think we're resuming end of the year stuff next week yeah that's exciting yeah but uh yeah rest in peace uh, uh john marie straub and danielle relay um, I'm sorry that Scott hates your movies, but I uh, <laughs> really loved them. Uh, I look forward to watching more. And uh, thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Okay. Um, you there? Yep.
Okay. All right. Hey, so uh, good luck editing that. Yeah, that's going to be a bitch. Um, <laughs> all right. So I'm seeing you next week then. Yeah. No, tri- no trivia. No trivia. Uh, for individual achievements. So okay. Cool. Uh, I'll have to find the list, Tyler, because I always forget what the categories are. Every yeah, year. please do. Um, but I know there's one wild card that we do every year. Right. So, um, okay, cool. Uh, yeah, I'll find the list because I know Tyler has emailed it to me before and I'll send it to you. All right. All right. Take it easy. Bye. Bye.